Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 116 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. Today, I am excited to share with you Brian and Claudia. Those are Amelia's parents, and Amelia was just a delightful young girl. She had a lot of medical problems, but she actually conquered all of them and was doing amazingly well before she died unexpectedly from something any child could have gotten. So their story today is really unique because they can relate to families who had kids with chronic illness, but they really didn't lose her to a chronic illness. So in some ways, they relate even more to people like me who lost their children unexpectedly in a car accident. I know that just all of you will really enjoy hearing the perspective of Amelia's parents. Thank you so much to the both of you. I have two guests today. I have Amelia's mom and dad, and I'm just excited to be able to talk to both of you about your amazing little girl. So you know what I want to start out with is I got an email from Brian just telling me all about their daughter, and it came with the most amazing picture. It was a picture for on her birthday, it was all pink, it was balloons, this beautiful white background. It was the most stunning picture I have received from any parent, and I've received many, many pictures now, and I just learned that you did it yourselves. I can't believe it. I was so unbelievably impressed. So all of you have to look. I will put this on Instagram. I will put it on my my website. It will I'll actually make sure it's on Facebook. So you guys got to go look at this amazing picture done by Amelia's mom. So you talk about that a little bit first. We're talking about the picture. Okay. Yeah, I was, I'm super proud of it. Um, we had a little mini- <laughs> little mini photo shoot for her birthday. It's actually the day before her birthday. And we got our little cake because it's COVID and everything. I couldn't hire a photographer to come in and take pictures of her, especially since she was a high risk kid. So I kind of, for the first time in my life, did a little DIY. I got a nice little background, a little backdrop. And I had a friend make a little balloon arch and we got some good, we got a beautiful cake and we got some nice, photos from a bunch of different angles and a bunch of different we've got so many different smiles that's just one of like a million marcy yeah we've got oh pictures of her stuff in her face i am blown away yeah. yeah unfortunately you don't see the aftermath she's actually she actually allergic. gets an allergic reaction to the buttercream <laughs> egg whites she yeah, got allergic and so about 20 minutes after those photos she's got little red patches she's on getting her face. blotches so we actually only took photos for about 
15, 20 minutes. Then we noticed she was breaking out. So that was the end of that. But. Oh, we got some beautiful photos. and You did get beautiful photos. So a little bit of hives, I guess, was worth the beautiful photos as long as it didn't end up getting too severe. So no, she was totally fine. Yep. She was good. I think she enjoyed the the sprinkles and she certainly looked like she was enjoying herself in the pictures anyway. It was amazing. She was, even though we kept having to put her back in her spot. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the earlier photos because yeah. of course she destroyed the cake. So oh, all right. Well, why don't you start out now by just telling us all about your amazing little girl? She was definitely very amazing. I guess we can kind of start with, we wanted her for a long, long time. And uh, when we got pregnant with her, we were very happy. We had just bought a house because we kind of got tired of waiting to get pregnant. So we thought, let's buy a house. And then about a week later, we found out we were pregnant with her. Wow. Which we probably would have held off on something. Um, The house. Definitely would have been the house. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But she was absolutely great. I started reading to her uh, right away, Lord of the Rings. And I wanted her to have the nerd culture right from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And pregnancy was good. No problems. All of the ultrasounds came back with no problem at all. We found out we were having a girl and we knew her name right away. We actually went to go get induced and Emilia came so quickly. We got five hours, four hours, a five hour labor. Wow. And and we had had kind of a plan going in that we would epidural and we would, you know, you have your perfect like baby plan. Mm -hmm. They give you like Mm -hmm. this outline and you fill out your birth plan and just everything did not go as planned. Yeah. So. I know. I, I actually, to be honest with you, I always hated the birth plan. The moms that came up with a birth plan, I like, this is destined to go wrong. Totally. Totally. <laughs> because that's when I was in residency, you know, I would be involved in, in the delivery process and they come in and anyway, it was always like, you know, it's going to not go well. <laughs> You're no. almost better off winging it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So right away when Emilia was born, she was looking blue And so, you know, when they're supposed to put the baby right onto mom's chest and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, dad's supposed to cut the cord, uh, we didn't have any of that because the doctors and nurses recognized that there was an issue right away, whisked her away to put her on oxygen. And, and I kind of had a, we had talked about having a plan ahead of time that if anything should happen, you know, wild theories, if anything happens, I have to chase the baby. And Claudia's Mm -hmm. mom would stay with her. And we never thought it would happen, but that's what ended up happening. I prepare for the worst. (laughs) So I followed Emilia to the NICU where she was on oxygen and started getting all of her tests. And the pediatrician who was on call that day ended up being her pediatrician after the fact. Absolutely amazing doctor in Guelph who has dealt with a lot of cases that were similar to Emilia's. Okay. She was born with a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, uh, which was diagnosed, you know, from a chest x-ray after she was born, but wasn't picked up in any of the ultrasounds. And so right away, we were told that we're going to go to one hospital. They didn't have room. So we were told we were going to go to another hospital and ended up at SickKids. Mm-hmm. And at Sick Kids, they did some more tests, also found out she had a, a heart defect or a couple of heart defects as well. Yeah. 
she was there for the first two months of her life. Two and a half, three, I think. Yeah, two and a half or three months where some of her family got to come and meet her. And we went home for six days, came right back to the hospital. So we had a bit of a rocky start, but eventually we left the hospital. She had a nasogastric tube to help her eat because she was aspirating on her milk. And Mm -hmm. we kind of locked ourselves away for COVID uh, as soon as we got home. So everyone hands off and yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to back up just a little bit and explain to people what a diaphragmatic hernia is. So interestingly, interesting that you say this because when I was pregnant with my oldest, I was taking care of a couple of different kids that had congenital diaphragmatic hernias in the NICU. And so when I went in to go do my prenatal ultrasound, when they're saying, oh, the four chamber heart, and do you want to know if it's a boy or a girl and all of that, I asked, is the diaphragm intact? Yep. When, <laughs> and the ultrasonographer said back to me, what are you? Because like, well, I'm a pediatrician who is currently taking care of two kids with diaphragmatic hernias. So anyway, it was fine in my daughter's case. But I just felt my anxiety just kept going up because I was like, they're not saying anything about the diaphragm. So the diaphragm is the muscle. You, everyone's maybe heard of your diaphragm because it helps you breathe. But it is the muscle that separates your chest cavity, where your lungs are, with your abdominal cavity, where all your intestines are. So if you have a congenital diaphragmatic hernia, that means that that diaphragm is not fully intact holding all your intestines down. So the intestines tend to kind of float up into the chest cavity because it's just, it seems to kind of have room, right? So now your lungs, instead of growing beautifully and you, and what infants, well, what a fetus does is breathe in and out amniotic fluid. But when the intestines are stuck up there, then those lungs aren't working properly and breathing the amniotic fluid like they should. And so they cannot develop properly. So you end up with really severely malformed lungs, at least on the one side, is usually quite bad. And so then when you're born, you're having to live basically off of kind of one lung, if that, because the heart can be shifted. There are going to be all sorts of complications. And and I remember when I was in my training, which is now 20 years ago, I'm dating myself, it had about a 50% survival rate. So we used to tell parents when they were born that you your child has a 50% chance of getting making it out of the NICU. I am not sure what that number is now because I don't do neonatal but just to kind of give a little bit of background as to what that means just for the average listener because they're not going to know so I don't know what were you the numbers given to you oh oh do you know I I can't even remember honestly I don't I don't know if they gave us numbers I know that the 50 percent number was still given but I think that was given as kind of a low estimate kind of to get us prepared for the worst. But Emilia made it out. And uh, what you were saying with, uh, you know, the breathing problems, that's what was causing her to have trouble eating. Uh, She was breathing Mm -hmm. a little harder. And, you know, that was her struggle all through her life was, you know, the feeding problems that ultimately came from the CDH. So, you know, we, we came home uh, with an NG tube and we started feeding her solid foods at four months old when she could hold her head up. Wow. Which sounds crazy, but I swear it was yeah. <laughs> what our doctors told us to do. She had so uh-huh. many feeding therapists and physical therapists. And we were shocked when they said, start with purees. And, you know, Emilia hated purees. Yeah. She didn't like it. She absolutely <laughs> hated them. But when we started feeding her, you know, more real food, like bananas, even mashed up bananas, she couldn't stand them. But 
if I gave her a full banana, she was so good at taking a little tiny bite and eating it no problem. And we could tell that she loved playing with her food, loved eating her food. And that, you know, after the NG tube, she got a G tube put in and that changed her life completely because she went from not being able to lift herself up. And all of a sudden, once the irritation of the NG tube through her throat was gone, she was rolling over, she sitting was, up. She was like babbling. Babbling That's immediately. When she started saying mama and dada all of a sudden once we got that tube out. Yeah. When she came out of her surgery, only one person was allowed in the hospital at a time. And Claudia was there with her and they took out the NG tube and immediately Emilia started babbling. We have a video of it and she's just testing out her vocal cords. It's really sweet. So she just took off after her G-tube and that was in September. And then she became a tubey with a, f- that was a foodie. She was yeah. a tubey who was a foodie. We, was I, great. I thought it would be hilarious to give her her first steak. Um, okay. We didn't do this way back then though. You're jumping no, ahead. No, no, no. Okay. We, she we had, didn't go from burees to steak. No, she had, she had teeth by this point, but uh, I thought it would be great if we gave her her first steak as the best cut of steak we could find. So we found this Wagyu perfectly marbled. Claudia cooked it up. It was rare. It was, it was, it's so good. It's something that we treat ourselves to. And it was Emilia's <laughs> very first piece of steak. And she loved she it. She loved it. We gave her, oh. we always gave her a little bit of our food. And the next week or two weeks later, we had another steak, not the best. And Emilia chewed it up and spat it right out. <laughs> Only time she ever <laughs> spat anything out. And it was a, like a good steak. It wasn't a bad steak. Yeah. It was a nice ribeye. But you, she, you just spoiled her. Oh. Well, you gave I mean, her the best too quickly. We were trying to do that. So the <laughs> kid deserved to be spoiled. Yeah, we, that's right. That's right. We tried all kinds of foods with her and she was a total foodie. Like I was feeding her full peanut butter and jam sandwiches. We gave her octopus for Easter. And I'm, I'm, I'm Portuguese. It's, it's a thing. Okay. (laughs) Okay. But she ate all of hers and some of mine. She was, uh, Oh, French fries. Oh, French fries were her favorite. Yeah. You know, what little kid doesn't love French fries, but her absolute favorite blueberries we we always tried to spoil her because it was anything that she could eat and she was doing so so well i gave her the spiciest chana masala just a week before we ended up going into the hospital three days before and this it was in our fridge it was too spicy for claudia it's too spicy for her mama (laughs) but emilia took a bite and immediately had her mouth open for more. You know, one of her favorite dishes we always went back to was like asparagus with- uh, No, not asparagus, broccoli. broccoli. She hated (laughs) asparagus. Uh, It was garlic with a side of salmon. Yep. It was just absolutely coated with garlic and she loved it. So we had a little foodie on our hands that had her G-tube and she got off of it completely and that's something that we're so proud of her yes we we started weaning her off of her g-tube in january and so she was how old then one year 
Mm-hmm. One just year. right out of year. Oh, yep. Yeah. It, she might've been just a little bit under because her birthday was January 20th. Um, and we started mm-hmm. right after Christmas. So she was just under a year. By the time May came around, she was completely off of it. And we were scheduled to have it taken out. Oh, yeah. Which ended up being the day that she passed. We had her scheduled to go into the clinic and speak with her general surgeon because she was off of her G2. She was gaining weight. No problems whatsoever. She was getting a nutritious diet, variety of foods. And she was such a happy girl. She was, you know, she, she never quite took steps alone, but she, she took steps with the little, with the push, the push cart, my cousin got her, but she loved to Mm -hmm. stand up and she would clap for herself. Uh, She would look in the window at her reflection and she would look to us and she would stand up and just clap and scream. And she was such a happy girl and a little mischievous baby just you know once she finally got off the ng tube and you know was crawling less than a month later you know she was just around everywhere unstoppable learning how to climb stairs and just doing an amazing job and we were so proud of her still are oh absolutely So she was doing really well. I mean, it, this is in all areas of her health. You seem like it seemed like she was doing well or were there struggles in certain areas? No, she was finally a normal kid. Yeah. Like there were no problems anymore. She just needed the G-tube out. And you said she had a little something going on with her heart too, yeah. right? She so did. she was born with uh, some congenital uh, heart defects. They called it Swiss cheese heart, just which holes you can imagine what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And by the time we left the hospital, you know, at two or three months old, the sizes of the holes in her ventricular septum had decreased to a size that they weren't worried about doing immediate surgery. And Mm -hmm. they continued to decrease. And, you know, we had follow-ups with the cardiologist and it was never at a point that she needed surgery. So she got, if not a clean bill of health, she was cleared to pretty much do one year follow-ups and two years follow two year follow-ups mm-hmm. after that. So her heart never bugged her anymore. The diaphragm was fixed up. The only thing that there was, was a bit of uh, scar tissue from the G-tube surgery and uh, her diaphragm surgery when she was four days old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening that when everything kind of went downhill? Well, it was that when she got her G-tube, they went in and they noticed, wow, she, the, the G-tube surgery actually took longer than the uh, diaphragm repair. Oh, that's strange. Yeah. yeah, she had a lot of scar tissue, so they had to go in and clean it up. So she was about nine months old when we noticed that. And we obviously that's odd and that could cause complications later on, but there's nothing really you can do about it. So no. May rolled around. She was good until May, end of yep. May. She had just passed nine kilograms because we were measuring her like every week Uh, so proud of every bit of weight gain she had Mm -hmm. and one night after you know she had had dinner and full bottle of milk on her own we gave her a bath went to bed and she started to she started puking have a bit of vomit you know middle of the night we didn't immediately rush to the hospital mainly because she had had spinach soup for dinner and so there was nothing odd about green green. puke when you've had green soup (laughs) 
Yeah. And we're right. strangers right. to uh, that vomit with, you know, a baby that had reflux uh, most of her life. Yeah. So we have a whiteboard in her room that we marked down every little thing. We've got every tooth, every word, every bath night marked on this whiteboard. And so we marked down, uh, you know, that she had a puke. She had a very mild fever and put her back to bed. And we woke up to a bit of puke and then she wasn't eating her breakfast. And actually Claudia got her first dose of the COVID vaccine that morning. So she went and got the vaccine while I was trying to feed Emilia and, you know, give her some cookies and anything that she could stomach. And, and you called me while I was at the vaccine center and he said, yeah, she's really not doing very well. And I said, well, as soon as I come home, we'll, we'll go through, we'll just drive straight to sick kids Yeah, might be extreme, but we'll just go straight there. So, and on our hour and a half drive, you know, we're also emailing her pediatrician to keep her in the loop and, and her surgeons, surgeons, everything. And we ended up in the ER where they kept her on antibiotics and just were keeping an eye on her because they assumed that it was gastroenteritis. Uh, yeah, some sort of infection. Yeah. So they put her on antibiotics right away. And we waited until they got some imaging done to confirm that it was a bowel obstruction. So after they confirmed the bowel obstruction, they took her in for a surgery mm -hmm. to get rid of the scar tissue that was causing it. And surgery went well. We, yeah. So just yeah. to back up one second here, it, it was caused by the scar tissue. So the scar tissue right. was impinging her bowel. So they had to go in and she had a lot of scar tissue. They had to clean it up again. After that, everything looked fine. Yeah. So we were, she was recovering. We were on the ward that uh, she was actually taken to after she was born. Uh, so we were seeing nurses that we knew and her doctors were checking on us every day. And, you know, we have a sick kids family now. All of the nurses and Emilia's medical team is they're all saints in our books and they helped us just as much as they helped Emilia and everything was going fine until Emilia was yeah Emilia still couldn't have any fluids because they didn't want to they know. wanted to let the bowels heal and everything right yeah right give him some bowel rest yeah exactly so and, and Emilia poor girl we would come in with Starbucks drinks. And one of the things she loved to do was take our Starbucks cups and try to drink out of them like us. And so anytime we came in the room, we didn't give her coffee. P.S. No. Just throwing that out there. No. <laughs> okay. I mean, pumpkin spice latte, I think was her favorite to chew on. <laughs> but, but girl after my own heart. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and actually this morning we're eating vanilla bean scones, which were her food, just to jump all the way back to what a great eater she was. We'd give her this little Starbucks vanilla bean scone and she would hold out her hands and grab it. She'd go, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So point is she really loved food and drink and she wasn't allowed to have it. Yeah. And the last good day she had I was with her and she was doing great. Brian and I were taking things in shifts. I would take the day, Brian would take the night because only one of us were allowed in there at a time. Yeah. We got um, very good at hospital life. We just followed the nurse's example, night and day shift. Yeah. And, you know, we had it down pat. And the last good day, Claudia was with her. She was doing great. They told me that tomorrow we were going to give her fluids. Uh, we were going to give her sips of water and everything looked awesome. And I left around... I don't know, eight or 9 PM and Brian showed up. And about 
three hours into me being with Emilia, uh, she was having trouble getting comfortable. The nurses came in and started asking if, you know, if her extremities were looking a little bit darker. And uh, they told me that she needed to have her catheter put back in. So I called Claudia and we had a fight about it because she was doing so she was good. doing so well. I couldn't understand why her catheter needed to go back in after what they had just told me. And what we found out after was that, you know, the re- the reason they were putting the catheter back in was because uh, she wasn't peeing on her own and they wanted to check her urine output and mm-hmm. they got the catheter in and her kidneys had started to stop working, started to stop working, started to fail. Yeah. And then everything just started to hit boom, boom, boom. Just, you know, they came in and told me that she needs to get moved down to to the ICU and she needs to get another, a scan done and just another surgery to make sure that the bowel wasn't perforated during the surgery. She needed dialysis. She was going into multi-organ system failure. Like everything happened happened in 24 hours. And it was just out of the blue from about to drink water to just downhill. And eventually I was told to call Claudia, just ask her to come in. And they let both of us into the hospital um, with special permission because COVID was only one parent or guardian, that's it. And after Emilia came, they or after Claudia came, sorry, they, they told us that the situation was dire, dire and that we should prepare for the worst. And, and that was it. They were doing everything that they could. And they suspected an infection of some sort, and obviously. In, yeah, that it was consistent with sepsis and that they were doing everything they could. They put her on, you know, broad spectrum antibiotics and everything they could. She was very heavily sedated. And we went in with the doctors after they had been trying to give her dialysis for five hours because they were having trouble getting it in. And apparently it was touch and go. And we were just kind of waiting in a, in a room off to the side. They weren't sure Emilia was going to make it at that point. And then when they thought she was a little more stable, they let us in. And as we were talking over her, I bent over and my hair kind of grazed her, her cheek. All of a sudden she opened up her eyes, which they were shocked. The doctor said she'd never forget it. Because yeah. she's never seen a kid that sick open up her eyes for her parents. And we sang to her. We She had a, a little aquarium toy that we had brought from home that she always fell asleep to. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the night, sometimes she, we would hear on the monitor just a slap yeah. and her toy would turn on. <laughs> so we played her, uh, her aquarium. We put, you know, the stuffed animal that I got her when she was born and Claudia got her one when it was Easter. Easter. So she had her bunny and her bear. And we both sang some of the songs that we would sing to her and put her to sleep. And then they sedated them, her. A bit yeah. More. We told them to knock her out entirely because she was so covered in tubes. If, if she had the ability to, if she wasn't basically paralyzed by the drugs they were giving her, she would have been tugging everything out. So yeah. we said to knock her out. She was obviously in pain. So her last memory is us putting her to bed. Yeah. Yeah. And I was told to kind of go hide away in a, in a little uh, room that parents get to go sleep. And I could not sleep. I mean, I stayed with her and I was only there for, it was only an hour, only an hour. And then she was obviously uh, her blood pressure was going down. They kept pushing fluids, but she obviously was very 
swollen and just everything was going wrong. And she went into cardiac arrest and I was told to call Brian. So and he came running into the room. I I ran back through the halls and um, when I got there, you know, they were doing CPR and we didn't leave the room. And eventually we were told to sit down and just hold her. The doctor came, said there's nothing more they can do and just to hold her. So we held her and that and was she it. Passed. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we've just been dealing with everything after the fact. I was in complete shock. I was just You were catatonic. I was useless. Like yeah. just from the moment everything happened, you know, I I was useless. Claudia made every single phone call and like yeah. I don't know how she powered through cuz I I barely remember walking out of the hospital. Like yeah. and at the time we also signed the autopsy uh you know, permission. Yeah. Um, when we were trying to leave the, the ICU doctor, we call her boss lady. Cause she's a total boss. <laughs> yeah. she, she was, she was Emilia's first ICU doctor and, and she was the one treating her at the very end as well. And she was kind of telling us, you know, I think maybe you should do an autopsy. So and it was suspicious that it happened so close after a surgery. And and they had gone in that morning to make sure that there were no perforations, right? And they couldn't find anything. So it was really suspicious. It was really strange. And we signed the autopsy. Which we, just, which we just got the results for last yeah. week. We had to reschedule the interview with you. Yeah. 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 I, the interview was supposed to be exactly one week ago and then yeah. they scheduled the autopsy for the exact same time or the autopsy report to be given yeah. to you for the exact same time. So a couple of things have happened, you know, since she died because we we had been preparing to do genetic testing because it was offered to us and we thought we could handle it at the time after Emilia was doing so well and we kept the genetics appointment and had genetic testing done. And we got those results a couple of weeks ago and found out that Emilia had a syndrome. A very rare, new, yeah. newly defined uh, so, syndrome. And, and that's cardiac urogenital syndrome. So okay. it's, you know, we, we got the rundown of, you know, the exact genetics that cause it, but it was a de novo mutation. It did not come from either. So, so it's brand new mutation. Mm-hmm. And there's been so few cases reported. I think I think 19. she's the 19th case reported worldwide. Keeping in mind that obviously the technology to detect this kind of thing is sure, only sure. been around for like five years. But there are three main aspects to the syndrome. The first is the congenital diaphragmatic hernia. So check. The second is the heart defects. So check. Check. And, and then the other part of that is the urogenital uh, side, which we had never noticed anything because she was a girl, it's less common to notice on a girl. And mm-hmm. uh, in the autopsy, we found out that she did have some malformation out of her uterus and vagina. Yeah. So check. Yeah. So she was, you know, kind of this, she was this case of uh, cardiac urogenital syndrome. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't change anything that happened. It was still the, the treatment. CDH. Yeah. The treatment process would have been the same. Yeah. Nothing would have changed had we known. The scar tissue still caused an obstruction, which caused her to. And she obviously need the, needed the surgeries for the G-tube and the um, 
CDA. Yeah, CDH repair. So, I mean, there was nothing we could do about any of that. Yeah. And then the autopsy, in addition to telling us like that they could confirm uh, some of the malformation, they also kind of told us that they still think that it's sepsis, but they couldn't find any evidence of bacteria because the antibiotics had done their job. They had removed all of the bacteria, but everything still looked like sepsis, multi-system organ failure, and that the bacteria probably came from her own bowel, just with the inflammation it probably translocated from her bowel into the bloodstream and started to shut down her organs. So there was something we could do. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just again and again and again, just kind of that repeating, but you couldn't have done anything. You couldn't have done anything. You couldn't have done anything. Which I think is helpful because we're very good at the blame game. Yeah. Especially me. I've uh, got that guilt thing down packed. So... (laughs) Mm-hmm. everything's about me obviously <laughs> we've, we've talked about that on the podcast before about how Gwen has brought this up that someone that she worked with had said that it's so much easier for people to feel guilt than to feel powerless and I, I think that's what you're really describing here is that it's so hard when you feel like you are completely powerless there was nothing you could do because you always second guess and feel like but I could have done something. There had to have been something that I could have done. But when the answer again and again and again is you were just completely powerless and you never, there was never anything you could have done. It's hard to accept. Yeah, really. I mean, it's good news because it's not like you have to now, you shouldn't be, you know, don't should yourself either. That's, that's another saying we have here is, is don't should yourself say you should do things, but even though you shouldn't be feeling the guilt. So it's, it's nice that it's at least not valid guilt, but that's about all you can do really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But you know, nothing, nothing is worse than what's happened. And we've, we've now been dealing with, you know, those would have, should have, um, and everything else that's come, with losing Emilia and we've, you know, tried to keep ourselves going. And, you know, we started going on walks with her uh, and every morning we were going on walks. We've kept that going. You know, Emilia, one of, one of the few words she knew how to say <laughs> was go. And it was one of the few times that she picked it up completely out of the blue. I had her on my shoulders running around and I would say, let's go. And she would, uh, you know, run with me. And all of a sudden, as I was doing that one morning uh, before our walk, I just hear a little sound from up on my shoulders, go. (laughs) And she wouldn't stop saying it. And so now, you know, when we go on walks or when we're at the cemetery and, you know, it's time to get back in the car and go, we always, you know, say, let's go. Because that's what Emilia taught us to do. She caught She taught us to keep going. And, you know, we, we've been, you know, having the worst year of our lives. Uh, And she, you know, her being here during COVID makes COVID so inconsequential, you know, I know. Everyone will remember this as the worst possible time, but we 
had he had Emilia through everything. Like 2020 was the best year of our lives and 2021 as everything was opening up was the worst. Yeah. yeah. So we we've been trying to, you know, tell Emilia's story and we've been making the cemetery a beautiful bright place for her and we just put up some little we just took down her uh flowers the other day she had a bunch of flowers in there but you know we're in Canada it's uh getting cold <laughs> so the flowers are dying and um we put in some little We've seen snowflakes here in Michigan yeah so. ah there you go yeah you're not far. Yeah. yeah but we put in some little Christmas trees potted and we decorated it all up she's yeah. got some Christmas lights and baubles and you know we've got bright spotlights and you know it's the brightest place in the cemetery it really is it's, it's also just, the most colorful in yeah. the entire cemetery so we we've made a beautiful place and we've she's we've, got a nice little bench yeah she's got the only pink bench in the whole city yeah <laughs> yeah they discontinued it because no one ordered it but yeah <laughs> but it's beautiful yeah and you know we've tried to tell her story through you know, making sure that people know that she had beat her G-tube, that she didn't, you know, die because of the issues that she had her whole life. She died because of a complete accident that could have happened to any kid completely out of the blue. This wasn't something that, you know, we were, it was hanging over our heads for months and months. And, We've tried to tell that. We also set up a website, runforemelia.ca, when we did a charity run uh, for her or walk. A 5K. A 5K to raise money for sick kids and to distract us. All about distraction. Yeah, and, yeah right? Uh-huh. And so... And wanting her remembered. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Hence that the is, walk and the is, website. Yeah. So that we... That is just the biggest fear I... I think is feeling like no one will remember. Yeah. I, I don't want to be the only one who remembers my Andy, right? You don't want to be the only ones who remember your Amelia. Yeah. And that's really hard too, because I mean, she, she died at 16 and a half months and her whole life was in COVID. So um, like her grandparents only got to hold her once right before COVID. And then the, her whole life, she's been, isolated isolated here with us um so her whole life it was just us we we didn't get to show her off you know we didn't get to take her out to parties and and take her out to dinners and show her off to everybody and we were so damn proud of her we We would have loved to and we had so many plans you know for once everyone was vaccinated you know we were about to you know on doctor's recommendation we would start letting people back in if they were double vaxxed plus two weeks and you know they could come and see her hold her again and she never quite reached that point so so going back to that fear of other people not remembering her like no one else got to be there for all they never even knew her yeah no sometimes Exactly. I, sometimes I say that some people will say something and, and it'll trigger me and I'll say like, you didn't even know her, (laughs) which isn't quite fair. We tried very hard to, to share her with the family. We had video calls and Snapchats. Video calls were her life. She loved playing with our phones. And I have to tell you, uh, Emilia only child (laughs) in the middle of a pandemic where she has not met anybody else was the best sharer. She shared 
everything. <laughs> she would bring us her toys. She would, uh, I would try to feed her and she would feed me right back. <laughs> and there was a video call with my dad and Emilia was eating her goldfish and just started trying to push them into, into the, the phone. phone. Just trying to, and I told my dad, like, she's trying to feed you. She's trying <laughs> to share with you. And, you know, oh. even through the computer, like she was so sweet, such a. She was a perfect kid. <laughs> she was amazing, but she loved to share her goldfish and, you know, she. But those are the few little memories that people have interacting with her. Like they don't have a lot. And here we go with the guilt thing again. Part of me feels guilty for that. If I had known she was only going to have 16 and a half months, we probably would have been more lenient with our parents seeing her and her aunts and uncles. But because of this pandemic, we kept her all to ourselves. And I feel really guilty about that. Um, But but at the same time, we're super blessed. Exactly. Right. I think the both for sure. Yeah. Without you got COVID. to enjoy her so much. Yeah. Exactly. Without COVID and without even her health issues, I was able to take way more time off work than I would have had otherwise. So I wouldn't have had nearly as much time with her and mm-hmm. we wouldn't have been able to enjoy it. And, you know, COVID was the best time in our lives. Yeah. That's just... That's the truth of it. We just hid away in here with our kid and it was great. It was after everything was opening back up that we can say, you know, everything just became terrible. Everything opened up and we were just, you know, locked away for a different reason. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit about your grief journeys and how just grieving together and grieving separately, because I know you grieve differently. Oh, we definitely grieve differently. Yeah. Um, surprisingly we've kind of flipped. Brian was super emotional when everything happened and I was the strong stoic one. And now it seems like we flipped Brian's pretty strong and stoic. And now I get very emotional. Yeah. And it, I'm sure, you know, anyone who's been through this can kind of understand flip-flopping between, you know, I, I feel like I have to go and do things constantly. And then all of a sudden, you know, break down and I'm useless again. It's like, I'm right back, uh, you know, the day that it happened. We call it going into the room. Yeah. And we just, we have such vivid memories of, you know, that room and everything that happened. And so when, when we get really depressed, that's what our minds go to, but we've flip-flopped and we tend to kind of balance off each other. So when I'm, when I'm breaking down, Claudia is very strong. And when Claudia is breaking down, I try to be strong. So, for the most part. <laughs> for the most part. For the most part. There's been a couple of uh, false really starts. Really depressing we, days. <laughs> we both end up on the floor. And, yeah. But, but we've actually done a lot. I think going with what Brian was saying about doing things, we have to do, do, do. We've maintained her spot at the cemetery. Like we said, it's all decorated and it's beautiful. And we go out to garden centers now and we find cute things and we, we even ran away to Portugal for a month, (laughs) which, yeah, that sounds a little crazy, but we, we just couldn't handle being here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And Emilia, so Emilia is actually named after uh, Claudia's great grandmother from Portugal. 
And, and we found out that Emilia was going to be a girl and we decided on the name when we were staying there in 2019. And we, we kind of felt like, even though Emilia had not been there, you know, she had been there when we were in utero, in utero, <laughs> in utero yes, mm-hmm. but we, we felt such a pull there. And, you know, we tried to listen to, I don't know why, but I feel like we're supposed to do this, or I feel like I want to do this. It's what brought us home after Emilia died. And we felt that pull to Portugal. And it was hard to kind of convince ourselves to go until a great friend uh, said, would it be easier? Would it make your decision easier if I said I would go? And two days later, we were buying tickets all together uh, to go to Portugal a week after that. And we, you know, it was a bit of a pilgrimage for us. And we went to um, the sanctuary of Fatima in Portugal okay, and staying nearby. So we did a bit of a pilgrimage and we just relaxed and we felt like we could breathe in, you know, there, even though Emilia had never been there, we felt like we felt her. Yeah. We felt her presence, her pull so much more there than, than we had been over here. Yeah. Back home. We extended our trip. We, we, we literally stayed right up until the run two days later, when we got back, we had the the 5k that we were telling you about for sick kids it's one of the few like we had to come home for that I've also had physical pain as well I've developed really bad sciatica in the last couple of months and so you know I had to come back to have appointments and I think we would be running back to Portugal now if we could because we're not sure we can do Christmas or any celebrations I know know? I know that's so hard. I it's so hard. Especially I mean you went through something very similar in some ways. I know she had medical problems throughout, but it still it was almost as sudden as me losing my auntie in a car accident, right? Cuz everything was fine like, oh, she was kind of sick, but we went and did the surgery and this is going to kind of fix everything and we're going to be out of here in a few days. I, I mean, you're I almost feel like you're back in the hospital that initial stuff you were seeing all those people back from the past. It almost was like, um, you know, just like a little party almost like, oh, I get to see all these people again and they get to see how much she's grown and we're going to just fix this little thing and then we'll be off again and we won't really need to see them. And then it just, then just disaster, right? I mean, just completely out of the blue. You hit the nail on the head right there. We've said numerous times that, Um, It never occurred to us that this was going to be the outcome when we went in, you know, we went back for clinic visits and stopped in on the floor to just say hi. And, and that, that's what it felt like. And we've been through the absolute, absolute terrible time now. And we've had to deal with things that we never thought we would have to deal with. We've had to come to terms with our own mortality, you know, in our grief journey now that, you know, what, 28 year old has picked out and paid for their cemetery plot yeah and and the the stone that we're waiting to get put in we're very excited for it um it already has brian and my names on it which weirded out a lot of people when we told them that but there's an odd comfort in knowing exactly where you'll be and we're Mm going to be with her and that brings us comfort 
Yeah. I mean, Eric and I will be right next to Andy. They, when they got us the one spot, it's, it's interesting because it was in a township cemetery. It's a very beautiful cemetery. It's close to us, but anyone who lives in the township can be buried there for free. So you don't, you don't pay for any of it. And, um, so the funeral director said, I, there, you live in Cascade Township. It's, there's a very beautiful cemetery. I'll, I'll arrange for them to show you the spot they can give you. And the guy, you know, showed us the spot and he said, and there, there are three, you know, he didn't just give us one. He gave us three that day, which was beautiful. I mean, it's just so nice to know that I'll be right there next to him, you know? Yeah, exactly. And we, we really lucked out. We couldn't deal with that in the aftermath. We were both catatonic at this point. And my parents were saints. They went out and spoke to them. And my mom tried to get us the most beautiful plot and she succeeded. She, uh, they were showing her this plot in the center of a bunch of uh, graves. And it was a nice enough plot, nothing wrong with it. But my mom looked over and there was a tree and she was like, how do we get over there? How do we get a, a plot over there? And they said, oh, you know, that's a new row. We haven't started that yet. I think the only way we could do that is if we got two plots side by side, two like family plots side by side, double plots, I guess they're called, Yeah. but they have more room. And so, yeah, that day my parents bought the, yeah. <laughs> the second plot right next to us so that we could have, that Emilia could have the most beautiful, perfect spot under a tree. So and... we're on the edge. We put a bench under the tree, the pink one, and <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's just such a beautiful spot, but it's, you know, it feels like a second home. That sounds, it's so morbid and people get weirded out, but I feel in some ways more at home at the cemetery than I do in my own house because her, like, this is her house and we're surrounded by a quiet place that should not be quiet, but the cemetery is supposed to be quiet and it's a peaceful kind of quiet and it's peaceful to know that Emilia's here and this is where I'm going to be and I've come to terms with that it is it was just it feels so natural to be there now it feels like home and you know you don't know unless you know I guess yeah well, I'm sorry my clock is going off now. <laughs> I didn't turn it off. I didn't think about it. But I do love this clock because this was given to me by my family after Andy died. So it sings every hour. Um, unless I usually turn it off before I do an interview, but I didn't. It um, came at the perfect time. Yeah, it really it did come at the perfect time, actually. I think I... I think I like it. Now my computer is asking me if I'm playing music right now because it's just <laughs> sensing there's music going on. Yeah. It's too smart. Anyway, they, they gave me that um, after Andy died just because of his love of music. So they wanted us to have a little bit of, of music going through the house. So yeah. that's beautiful. Anyway. We've decided certain things that have just felt right because it's hard to know what a 16-month-old likes and doesn't like. You know, we, we know what she really didn't like because she was vocal about it. <laughs> and, you know, she loved playing with phones and there's things that we knew for sure. But we've had feelings afterwards, like there's ladybugs all over the cemetery and we see uh-huh. bees at the flowers, everything. Fireflies. Fireflies. And 
we've just come to realize Emilia loves bugs. I don't know how we know this, <laughs> but she would love bugs. It's not something she ever did, but we know that she would just be fascinated by them. I do remember one time she was trying to pick up an ant. It was days before we ended up in the hospital and she was trying to pick up an ant in the backyard and I freaked and I picked her up and I was like, no, but your mom also called her ladybug. And afterwards I realized I, I called her little bug all the time. Yep. And And we see bugs and we think that she's trying to show us some bugs. Yeah. Which may sound crazy, but it doesn't sound crazy to me. Good. <laughs> so th- there's things that we we just have come to realize that Emilia loved and loves these things that, you know, she could never really tell us, but you know, she would have liked all the flowers. She would have picked them all off. She liked to pick leaves off of trees and she would laugh at that. Oh yeah. The, the, the flowers without a doubt. We, every time we go to the cemetery, we would say like, she would, she would be picking these flowers or trying to eat them. And <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, she just sounds like such a, such a joy. Oh, what a beautiful, amazing girl. She was. And it's it's crazy because how much she she suffered as a kid, all the pokes and all the tubes. And we had to change her NG tube at home ourselves. Yeah. Like it was really difficult. She was put through a lot. She was put through the ringer and yet she was always happy, mm-hmm. which was always really inspiring. Rebounded always rebounded. She never cried for more than 30 seconds. Like yeah. she slept through the night. Oh, immediately. Immediately. We, I attribute it to the loud hospital for the first uh, couple months. But when we got her home, you know, and put her in the bassinet in our bedroom, she never slept well. And we just decided one day she will probably sleep better and will sleep better if she has her own room. We put her in a crib and she was sleeping through the night, 10 hours, no problem. I miss the sounds on the baby monitor because... When she did wake up, you would hear a slap followed by her toy singing the aquarium we were talking about before. It's like a baby Einstein's aquarium thing. And like, I miss those sounds in the middle of the night. I'm just waiting to hear the aquarium. Or in the morning, I would normally hop up, get out of bed and go grab Emilia. And she would, she always loved sleeping on her belly. She was face down and there were times I opened up the door. She kind of groggily looked up at me and just fell right back down. She was like a teenager. Yeah. It was like, she would give us this look like mama, dada, leave me alone. I want five more minutes. Five more minutes. (laughs) She was, you know, once she was up, she was so happy and she was such a joy in our life. And it's hard now being here without her yeah and we've been just accepting every bit of grief help we possibly can I know you know I I think almost everyone you've had on that's a sick kids parent has talked about uh, the wonderful grief coordinator Lori and I've heard great things about her I've emailed her a little bit yeah (laughs) she's amazing I was emailing her today (laughs) but and one of the reasons I you know, I started listening to your podcast was because of another parent that was on here. And, you know, I started listening, Dimitra, and, right? Yeah, Dimitra. And mm-hmm. the, this podcast felt 
like, you know, hearing the stories from the parents in the grief support group. And that was one of the most helpful things that we found right after was knowing that we're not the only ones going through this. Mm -hmm. It's still hard to find anyone with a story that matches ours. Everyone's story is different, but we're all just part of this terrible, terrible club. That that no one understands because a lot of people who haven't been through this have compared... Like, I guess everyone tries to make you feel better. Well, make you feel better. Try to empathize, I guess is the word I'm trying to say. And I don't know how many times like people have told us, oh, you know, I've had a miscarriage before or something like that. And it's like, that's not the same. I know. (laughs) Like, I understand totally valid, 100% valid. It's a valid pain. I know. But. But it's not the same. No. And it's, it's difficult because we hear that a lot. Oh, I know what you're going through. I had a miscarriage and it's like, yeah, my daughter was healthy. I mean, all, all grief is extremely valid. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, the reason the sick kids support group was so good was because it was all the same realm of grief, but we could not fathom going to a grief support group that is filled with people who have lost spouses or parents or grandparents like, and mm -hmm. like, absolutely you grieve, but it's a, it's a different realm of grief. You know, like you, you expect your grandparents to go one day, your parents, you know, when you have a spouse, one of you is going to go first. Losing a child is so out of the natural order. Your kid's supposed to outlast you. Yeah. I mean, I was in a grief support group at my church and there was a man who's like probably 70 and his mother was in his nineties and he, he was there because she had died. And I just, I just thought, I mean, and he was grieving. I mean, it's not like he wasn't grieving, but it just, I couldn't at all relate to it. Yeah. Not, Not at all. It was just really difficult to feel on the same page as a 70 year old man who lost his 95 year old mother. It's, it's about the relating. You said the key word. It's hard to relate. Yeah. Yeah. And I know he was sad and it was, I mean, it was sad. I was 21 when I lost my mother when she was 42. And that was obviously the hardest thing I'd ever gone through. And it was terrible, but it's entirely different than what I went through. You know, when I was in my forties and lost my 14 year old son. Yeah. It's not, that's not the same. No. Yeah. It's all grief. And there are lots of things that I think we can still learn from each other. I I think I learned things when I lost my mother that that helped me later on. Right. I mean, as opposed to my husband, who was really grieving for the first time. I mean, he lost a grandmother, but nothing really close. So I think in some ways I was a little bit better prepared, but still, still. It, yeah, it feels like the, the grief comes back so often because we always think about, you know, where would Emilia be now or what would have happened? And we're not just grieving for the child that we know and love and that's gone right now. It's also all of the possible things that could have happened. And, and the yeah. life we were planning together. Yeah. Like it's all gone. You're grieving your entire future. Exactly. Your future, your child future is gone. Your future is not even close to the same. And 
It's sadness every single day. And people do not get that. They don't I, get no. I think every you've touched. Day. Yeah. Yeah. I think you touched on it uh, a little bit ago uh, in saying, you know, you don't want your child forgotten. And I always want Emilia to be spoken about. I want to share her. I want to tell her story continuously. And, you know, we, and we've heard from a couple of parents that this is like one of the things to do. We got tattoos for Emilia. Oh, I've been wanting to do that. My husband's yeah. not on board, but yeah, <laughs> do it. You know, we, we went out. I'm a bad influence. <laughs> we went out one and neither of us had tattoos before, but both of us went out a month after we lost Emilia and we got her name. I'll show it to you. Her name written on our arms and we yeah. feel like it, like she's written all over us. This is just a little bit of it coming to the surface. And if someone sees the tattoo and asks, who's Emilia, you know, that's putting her name on someone else's lips for the rest of my life. And so yeah. I, I want that to always come out. Then we went back months later, we just got uh, other tattoos of her handprint and footprint. So I have her footprint on, on the top of my foot so that she's, I would dance with her. I would hold her hands and she would step on my feet and we would walk and dance together. And so she's standing on my foot and she's walking with me. Yeah, and I've got her, her comfort hand, the, the hand that she would suck her finger on. I've got that over my heart. Yeah. So. so we've got tattoos that are hidden and that mean a lot to us and that she's always with us. And then we have Another one that we want people to see her and recognize, like we are literally wearing our grief on our sleeve. It is written into our skin on our arm. I love that. It's just one way. I yeah. really hope that people never stop asking about her. I will share. We've only shared a couple of choice stories today, but she filled our days for 16 and a half months with mm -hmm. so much joy, a bit of screaming, like good and bad you're, you're raising a, a baby like there's bound to be some crying but not a lot not a lot not a lot but she's she's still with us and it's hard to think about sharing the story with people that we haven't met yet because it's one thing the people who knew her and know us now but five years from now if we're getting a new job talking to coworkers, and they ask how many kids do you have and I know that's a big question that keeps popping up. Like it's a terrible question to ask. And mm -hmm. how are we going to tell people about Emilia? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know that question is the worst question. And, and I had someone say that what you really need to say is tell me about your family. So that is, that is my like mission in life to get people to stop asking how many kids do you have? And when they're curious, say, tell me about your family. That's way better. So now you can spread that too. I'm. It's like my mission to get that question changed over. So if I can do it just a couple people at a time, that's the way I'm going to do it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing Amelia with us. Thanks, Marcy. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. Please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player.
We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at andysmom.com. Be sure to visit the webpage, andysmom.com, for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope, one day at a time.